Well, I heard there was a game yesterday. Who cares, right? <laughs> Says the team that lost. Now, it was rivalry, rivalry week this weekend, and uh, people in two states seem to care a whole lot about that game, and a few more maybe if they'd uh, moved other places, but people in Alabama didn't care too much. They just, who we're going to beat in the playoffs is all they're thinking about. And it turns out today, church, did the sun rise? <laughs> Jesus is still king. Amen. It's just a game. But it's a big, big rivalry, isn't it? The people of our state and Ohio and really the nation, it's the game. And it's fun, but it's football. And there's going to be a rivalry that we're going to see, or a potential rivalry, the idea of a rivalry in our text today. We are in John chapter 3. We're looking at verses 22 through 36. Verses 22 through 36. And we're just going to start with these two first words after this. What was the previous passage about? Remember the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus? Uh, These introductory words do not mean that the events that we're about to read happened right after the discussion, though. Uh, They could have happened a little while after, uh, and after the conclusion of the Passover feast that, that week. But what this potential gap in time should do for us, and that John would use these words after this, uh, he has chosen to put these two accounts back to back. Okay, so we have this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, and then we have this conversation between these disciples of John and John the Baptist. Okay, so there's going to be some comparison and contrast that we need to see between these two men, their thinking and their discussions that they have. Um, Jesus and his disciples, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. They had left Jerusalem after the Passover, uh, heading east toward the Jordan River, Jesus and his disciples, and they spent time there. The word for remained uh, would indicate that this wasn't just a few hours of time. Uh, They would have stayed for at least a few days, if not more, if not longer. So a couple of things about this baptizing. We want to ask, okay, now Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. What's, What's the deal with that? What's going on here? Number one, Jesus himself, we know from John 4, 2, wasn't doing the baptizing. Okay, it says that he didn't do any of that. Uh, think Paul versus Apollos in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, nobody could feel like they had a special powers or anything like that because Jesus baptized them. Does that make sense? Say, oh, you got baptized? Well, guess who baptized me? Jesus. There wasn't any of that going on, okay? Uh, but secondly, this baptism would have been similar to the baptism of John. This isn't yet Christian baptism. That doesn't come into play until after the Great Commission is given. And then we read in Acts the day of Pentecost, and they were being baptized that day and added to the number of the church. This is a different kind of baptism. This is the same kind of baptism that John was baptizing with. Jewish people were undergoing a ceremonial cleansing that was generally reserved, remember, for those unclean Gentiles. We say that with quotes, those unclean Gentiles. So Jesus and his disciples are doing the same thing. There's these two ministries, John the Baptist and his disciples, baptizing a baptism of repentance, and Jesus and his disciples baptizing with a baptism of repentance. 
You see the difference here? There doesn't seem to be one, does there? Uh, They're doing the same thing. So we have a little rivalry, potentially. Not like Ohio State and Michigan, though. And I don't say that because Urban Meyer 7-0 against Michigan. That has nothing to do with it. But this isn't like sports. This is more like customers. This is more like maybe a Pepsi versus Coke type of rivalry or a UPS versus FedEx or a Ford versus GM. Maybe Visa versus MasterCard. Who was going to say American Express? I don't know. Whatever. Apple versus PC. CVS versus Walgreens. When you, when you see one of those two go up on one corner, what do you expect to see in the other corner within the next month? <laughs> right? It's coming. Just wait. Starbucks versus Tim Hortons, Big B's, something like that. Jesus versus John the Baptist. Let's find out. Let's find out. Verse 23. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Uh, This location was up north from where Jesus and his disciples were. Uh, John the Baptist and his disciples had set up shop now within the borders of Samaria. Uh, So interesting note here that Anon means springs. So it's fitting that there was plenty of water there, okay? And John was baptizing there as opposed to, say, a desert where there was no water. You see that in the text? Because water was plentiful there. Okay, John the Baptist didn't do ministry where there was no water. That makes sense, doesn't it? Why wouldn't he do his ministry where there was no water? Well, he assumed that there were going to be baptisms occurring. (laughs) He was set up for success, wasn't he? That was the fruit of his ministry. He had himself prepared for there to be fruit in his ministry. He didn't preach where there was no water. He was prepared for success. He was prepared for victory. It's a good perspective for us to have. It says here, though, parenthetically in verse 24, that John had not yet been put in prison. Okay, an interesting side note here. John's imprisonment and death are not really recorded in the Gospel of John, but only alluded to here in this verse. The details of John's uh, imprisonment and his death are recorded in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and just briefly mentioned in Luke 9. So let's turn real quick to Matthew 14 and see exactly what happened there with John. Matthew chapter 14, and starting in verse 1. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus. Uh, by the way, Herod would, would have been Idumean, which is the a New Testament word for an Edomite. So Herod was a descendant of Edom, who is Esau. And they would have been loyal to Rome. So Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. Uh, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. He's fearful. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So Herod had uh, desired his brother's wife, so got her to divorce her husband, his brother, and then married her. And John the Baptist said, bad move. And as a result, Herod put him in prison. Okay, Verse 5, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. 
But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, his wife, his new wife, danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. That would sound really wise. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So she doesn't like him very much either. And the king was sorry. Why? Because he feared the people. But because of his oaths and his guests, he feared the people. That's, he's in a tight spot. He fears the people and he fears the people. And when people have different ideas than other people, you're in trouble, aren't you? He commanded this to be given. Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples, John the Baptist, came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. That's the end of John the Baptist. Uh, Pretty amazing to think that the man who Jesus called the greatest who ever lived died by beheading at the hands of a powerful political leader who stole his brother's wife, enjoyed watching his niece-slash-stepdaughter dance seductively, and was a slave to the opinions of the people around him. That's how John the Baptist died. Not very glamorous, right? And he died young. Remember that the greatest man who ever lived died at just over 30 years old. Was he not in Elizabeth's womb? Jumping for joy at the presence of Jesus in the womb of Mary. They were born in the same, in the same year. This was the end of John the Baptist. Verse, back to verse 25 in John 3. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew, seemingly here sent by the Jewish leadership, over purification. Over purification. This passage doesn't seem to say anything, on the surface anyway, about purification. Uh, what were they even arguing about? Uh, perhaps, and I think this is probably it, the merit or the lack thereof of the baptism that John and now Jesus' disciples were giving. Was that purification? Or was their manner of purification the right manner of purification? This would have been a logical argument for them to have. Uh, but whatever the arguments caused, they were about to ask Jesus. They were about to ask about Jesus uh, stealing John the Baptist's thunder. So the conversation seemed to go from purification to, hey, Jesus is stealing our thunder. Does that make sense? Uh, and it seems that the argument about purification never gets settled But we know that John the Apostle would not have just forgotten about this. So maybe there's something there. So we'll have to keep our eyes open as we continue to read through this passage. Verse 26 says, Then they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, that's Jesus, they say, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. By the way, who's bringing about this debate? These are John the Baptist's disciples, isn't it? And and all here gives us the idea that it was no small transition. John's crowds were getting smaller, and seemingly everybody, all, who had been coming to John now are going to Jesus. So the question is, how would John respond? And let's read this whole response at once, and then we'll break it down, starting in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Uh, what does this statement remind us of? Uh, from a recent conversation we got to listen in on between Jesus and Nicodemus. Think of John 3.3, 3, Except a man be born again, be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John the Baptist is saying, this is God's doing. People are coming to Jesus. They're being drawn to Jesus because God is at work. John the Baptist is losing his crowd, and he's saying amen. <laughs> he's saying this is good. This is what God's doing. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness. You all saw this, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. When Jesus came and was baptized, John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. Uh, when, the John, when John the Baptist bore witness at Jesus' baptism, he declared what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew his role. He knew his purpose. He was given the privilege, the task of preparing the way. Preparing people and then pointing those people to the Christ. Uh, now, seemingly out of nowhere, as this goes on here, we have this illustration of marriage. Doesn't seem like anything was leading up to it, but he just brings this in. So let's see what, what it's all about. Verse 21 says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. We would ask, where does this illustration come from? When did we start talking about marriage? But we might know in numerous places in the Old Testament, primarily in the prophets, we see Israel compared to a bride. So this would have been in the minds of the people. Ezekiel 16 says this. This is verses 8 through 14. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. This is God speaking to Israel. And I spread the corner of my garment and covered your nakedness. Remember Boaz and Ruth? And Ruth was told to go to Boaz at the threshing floor and that he was going to cover her and it was a sign of their engagement, if you will. It says, I spread the corner of my garment over you. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and adorned you and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and put a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown, Israel, went forth among the nations because of your beauty, 
for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. But also in the New Testament, that's Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, where do we hear this language of the groom and the bride? We spoke briefly about this last week. The passage is Ephesians 5. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water. Think about that, the washing of water. Remember John 3, 5, born of the water and the spirit. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. By the washing of water with the word. Faith comes by hearing of the word. So that Christ might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So we have this Old Testament example of God seeing his bride seemingly at the side of the road, destitute and dirty and bloody. And he picks her up, lifts her up, cleans her, washes her, makes her beautiful. We have this New Testament picture of Christ seeing the church in the same manner and washing her, cleaning her by giving himself up for her. And it's interesting, in context here with this passage, um, I often would think about the process of sanctification, meaning progressively becoming to be more like Jesus, and that washing with the water by the word, I would think about that more so on the aspect of becoming more like Christ and growing as a Christian. But these other passages with this, what does it look like? When, when Jesus sees the church and sees his bride, how does he view her to be? Is she still down by the road and covered in blood and dirt and her sin? Or is she without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish or any such thing? Isn't that amazing? Now, are we there yet? (laughs) Is that where we are, church? So we have this again, this seemingly already, this is done because it's finished in Christ, and this not yet. We're not quite there yet in, in ourselves, in reality, in our life, in our walk with him. Remember that sanctify has a couple different meanings. It can mean set apart. So, so Christ set us apart from the rest of the world. It also means the process of progressive sanctification being changed and conformed bit by bit into the image of Christ. And also that final sanctification that we would also call glorification. We're made, we're made to be just like him when this without spot blemish or wrinkle actually happens and it's really true of us amen that's going to be a good day that's going to be a good day but jesus in his death on the cross the moment you put your faith and trust when you believed this was the position you held perfect spotless because you achieved it or because he washed you right Because he washed us. And and again, like we talked about with the gospel and helping us in life, how does that make us think about our wives, husbands? Nobody's perfect on this earth, but how does Jesus see his bride? 
And what does that motivate? Knowing that Philippians 1, 6 that says that he's going to be faithful and just to complete the work that he started in us, it's as good as done. Well, how does it make us think about the church? This church has its flaws, just like every other church on the face of this earth. But do we quit on it? Christ is going to perfect it. It's been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and he loves it. Right? We can have a love that is given by the truths of the gospel for the places that God has put us in in our relationships with other people. That requires humility, doesn't it? Because we are those people. (laughs) Right? I was that person on the side of the road that was bloody and dirty and a wreck. And Jesus washed me. And he did the work. So let's praise him. Uh, And by the way, in both of these passages, and we know this, who's doing all the work? In Ezekiel and Ephesians, who's doing this cleaning, cleansing work? Who is doing the sanctifying? Who is doing the purifying? Remember the question, the arguments about purification? Okay, in bringing up the marriage imagery, John the Baptist is also answering the purification question. It's not the jars. Remember the wedding in Cana? Little wedding imagery here after the miracle at Cana. It's not those jars, the purification jars. It's not the water in the Jordan River. It's the blood of Jesus. It's not the jars. It's not the Jordan. It's Jesus. That's where purification comes from. He continues in verse 29. He says, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. The friend of the bridegroom is it's kind of like the best man, but not exactly. In Jewish culture at that time, the friend of the bridegroom had some major responsibilities, two of which were, one, making sure all of the preparations were made, and two, presenting or handing off the bride to the bridegroom. So it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, that John the Baptist would call himself the friend of the bridegroom. And he says in this, who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John the Baptist, like everyone else who becomes a follower of Jesus, hears his voice and rejoices and follows him. John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Now, because the bridegroom has come, therefore, he says, therefore, in verse 29, this joy of mine is now complete. Because John the Baptist truly loved Jesus Christ and was surrendered to the Lord's will, his joy increased as the Savior increased. He said in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist knows, and this was the message from the first witness, the first testimony of John the Baptist, it's not about me. It's not about me. His joy grew in proportion to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. May this be true of all of us as well. Uh, The greater the Savior grew in the hearts of man, the greater the glory he received, the greater the joy. Uh, Do you know what gave John the Baptist joy and peace when he was in prison? Remember later on, when he's in prison, before he's beheaded, he's, he's feeling down in the dumps as we would expect anybody to in that condition, right? But what gave him confidence? What gave him assurance? 
he asked Jesus, you're the one, right? Because <laughs> this is what I live for. You'd think the thing you were put on earth to do, you'd be wondering when you're in that position, did I do my job? And Jesus says, tell John the Baptist this. Remember that? The blind are receiving their sight. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised. John the Baptist was affirmed. Jesus is the Christ. He is the bridegroom. That is what gave him joy and sustained him. The same was true for Paul in Philippians 4 when he wrote from prison, Rejoice in the Lord always. And the same is true for us. Where will we find the most joy? And even saying the most as if there's other joys that are comparable or that are worthwhile. Where will we really find true and lasting joy? And the answer is in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. In our own hearts, in our own hearts, and in the hearts of others to whom we minister. A joyful church is a church that lifts high the name of Jesus Christ and is taking the gospel to the lost, seeing Jesus glorified in the lives of others, of people. Uh, Now, verses 31 through 36, they serve as a summary statement for this chapter. And it sums up a a comparison and a contrast of Nicodemus and John the Baptist. The quote marks end at the end of verse 30, if you see that in in your Bible. So the idea is that John the Baptist has now stopped talking, and so this rest of this would be than theoretically a commentary from the Apostle John, summarizing either the first three chapters so far of his gospel, or at least this chapter three. Does that make sense? And he says these things. He who comes from above, who's that? Jesus, is above all. Jesus is God the Son. He is the Christ He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Think about this from the first half of the chapter, such as Nicodemus. Jesus said, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Then he says, he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Remember, Jesus said this in verse 13. Yet no one receives his testimony. Then, whoever receives his testimony, that's interesting that it would say that, <laughs> no one receives it. Whoever receives it, <laughs> the wind blows where it will. Jesus said that. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Sets his seal as a figure of speech. Uh, like the signet rings that the kings used for their decrees to, as if they were signing it. So today we would use our written signature, right? When you buy a house, you sign about 500 times your signature and your hands get tired and all that. It's like us saying today, I've signed off on this. I've signed off on this. Okay, the person is uh, receiving this. The testimony sets his seal, signs off on the fact that God is true. So the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, all of those things are screaming out, God is true. God is faithful. So anything that Jesus says is what God says. And if I refuse to believe the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, then I am calling God a liar. Does that make sense? 
For he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Without measure. This is the Trinity at work together in perfect harmony. God the Father sending God the Son, empowered by God the Spirit. Uh, The prophets of old. Here's the comparison. The prophets of old spoke by the Spirit of God. And their words were regarded as true. Now remember, not in their time. The prophets were persecuted. Jesus says this to the Pharisees a, a couple of times. But when they looked back at the Old Testament, they say, Oh, the prophets, yes. The prophets spoke by the Spirit. But then here's the comparison. Jesus speaks with the Spirit without measure. Prophets had some Spirit. Jesus has without measure the Spirit. It's the contrast there, the difference. So Jesus has the Spirit without measure. Therefore, believe him. Believe his words. If you can believe the Old Testament prophets, Jesus has a spirit without measure. Believe in him. Verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. See the word change there? Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not believe, it says whoever does not obey. A good reminder for us, believers obey. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And not to get clean, remember. Not to get clean, but because they've been cleansed because they've been given new life. And remember that the wrath of God remains on the person who does not believe because Jesus said they are condemned already. Already. So, as we think through this passage, why was there no rivalry? They posited these questions to suggest that there should be some animosity, that there should be some tension here because Jesus was taking all of John the Baptist's crowd, taking his followers, even his own disciples. Why no rivalry? Why no conflict of interest? John the Baptist is teaching, preaching, baptizing, getting disciples and followers. Jesus is teaching, preaching, baptizing, getting disciples and followers. Uh, Many of them, as I said, away from John. No angst, though. No bitterness. No animosity. Why didn't John the Baptist join in with Nicodemus in saying, how can these things be? Two reasons. Number one, he knew who the giver of all good things is. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. And remember, why did John the Baptist know that? How did he know that? Where did that knowledge and faith come from? Who had sovereignly given John the Baptist his reason for existing? Who had given the Spirit of God to him for his ministry and life of pointing people to Jesus? Who had given him a desire and a delight in seeing and enjoying the glory of God? This is a work of the grace of God. God did these things. And John the Baptist knew it. Number two, he knew what his purpose was. He knew 
who the giver of all good things is, and he knew what his purpose was. He was the friend of the bridegroom. So uh, to know that people had heard his message, to know that, that they've heard him, that they've repented, and that now they had heard the voice of the bridegroom and had run to Jesus Christ, this was mission accomplished for John the Baptist. John knew what God had made him to do. And God gave him the grace to accomplish his mission. Had John's mission become to get a big crowd and then to keep them happy and entertained and well-fed, keeping them interested in John the Baptist, where would his joy be? Think of the constant struggle. People coming, people going, people complaining, people thinking that he's great, people thinking, well, you just preached that message yesterday. And all of this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. There's no joy in that. There's just constant strain and struggle. And the joy of having a new follower lasts how long? And is it even really joy like God gives? It would not have worked. That's backward. Uh, Simply put, the reason John was so happy to step away from this apparent rivalry and conflict is because he knew who God is. And he knew who he was. John the Baptist had a right view of God and a right view of himself. He had a right view of Jesus and a right view of himself. John the Baptist had joy in the exaltation, in the glorifying of Jesus, because John the Baptist was not on team John the Baptist. He was on Team Jesus. Nicodemus personifies in chapter 3 the people who believed the Messiah was to be on their team. Uh, Remember, the coming of the Messiah was to be their crowning moment. So the Messiah, in their thinking, was supposed to be on Team Nicodemus, or Team Pharisees, or Team Temple, Team Sanhedrin. And they had it all upside down. It was upside down. Jesus is the king of of Team Jesus, it turns out. Right? And it can only be that way. And we might say, well, doesn't that sound self-centered? If I can't be on Team Andy, why does Jesus get to be on Team Jesus? That's not fair. Let's think about that for a second. Let's think about that. If Jesus were on anybody else's team that way, it'd be a disaster. Satan tempted Jesus with a shortcut to rule over the earth, didn't he? And it would have negated the cross. Uh, The Jews wanted their Messiah to give them their national sovereignty back. And if they would have gotten that, it would have negated the nations. Okay, these were the cultural felt needs at the time. Uh, Instead, Jesus humbled himself, Philippians 2. He humbled himself, took on flesh, and died on the cross for his bride, for the church. And it consisted of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We might say, well, boy, Jesus is on team. Jesus, he's awfully self-centered. The God of the universe who spoke everything into existence took on flesh and lived like we live. That's not a whole lot of cockiness on display there. Now, we groan, don't we, (laughs) in this flesh. We feel the aches and pains and the fatigue and the hunger and the sickness 
and we see forward, and, and if Christ doesn't come back first, we see death. And it's not the death part, it's the dying part we don't like, right? Jesus took all that on. He took all that on. That's not cocky. That's, that's humility. And he didn't just die, he died at the hands of his own creation. And not just any death, but death on a cross. He humbled himself and did that for us. Now today, in our cultural context, the Jews wanted their national sovereignty. In our context today, we might get the idea that Jesus exists to give us a good day. Where everything goes our way. Our bank accounts increase. We have nicer things. Our appearance improves. Our loved one and friends and even some strangers are super excited to see us and to be graced with our presence. Right? We'll feel strong. We'll have a high and positive view of ourselves. We'll not even get sick. And we think Jesus exists to give us all of those things. And by the way, just think about this for a second. If, if we just described there what we think about when we think about heaven... And we do, don't we? And all those things, are those, are those things great? Will heaven be awesome in those kinds of ways? Yes. But is that what the definition of awesome is in heaven? <laughs> we have to be careful that we don't look forward to Christ coming and say, finally, I'll get everything I want. Because those things are not the things that give us joy. There's a lot of healthy people that are very sad. Our greatest joy comes in the person of Jesus Christ. The reason why all those things are true of heaven is because he's there. And because he's making everything new. His glory will outshine all of those things. All of those things. But this is the culture that we live in, isn't it? These are the things that pull on our hearts. Uh, Realize, though, how we feel about Jesus when we have a bad day. If these are the things that pull on our hearts and if these are the things that we think Jesus exists to do and to accomplish, what happens when I have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad year? And this is where we start getting angry with God as if he's not keeping up his end of the deal. And if I get stuck in the trap of thinking that Jesus has to be on Team Andy, where's the relationship? What are my expectations? Where is my joy? And how big will my joy be? And really there is no joy in that, is there? Jesus has to be on team Jesus because he is God. It turns out I am not the center of the universe, but he sort of is. (laughs) He is. He is our maker. He is our sustainer. He holds everything together. And he became our redeemer, our savior. Remember those purification jars at the wedding at Cana? Why are those purification jars no longer necessary? Because of Jesus. Remember the argument about the merits of John's baptism for purification? Why is that baptism no longer necessary? Because of Jesus. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. The disciples see these things. They see the people. They see the people moving and fluctuating between this place and that place and that person and this person. And John the Baptist says, again, in different words, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. The bridegroom has come. He has loved his bride and gave himself up for her, making purification, making peace by the blood of his cross. And his sheep, his team, hear his voice and they follow him. And Jesus says, when you think about it in this way, Jesus says, Dave, you're on my team. Barb, you're on my team. Jacob, you're on my team. Remember in recess when you were a kid? Maybe you don't. The two captains get chosen for whatever game you're playing. Let's play kickball today. We're going to play some kickball. There's two captains, and the one captain says, Mitchell, you're on my team. And you go, oh, all right, I got picked first. And you get up there, right? And you jump, and you get behind your captain, and then you start, pick that guy too. But that's not how heaven works. But (laughs) Jesus calls your name. (laughs) Lazarus, come out of the grave. What did Lazarus do? All right. He comes up out of the grave, and he's come to life. Jesus calls your name. We hear his voice, and we rejoice. We jump up, and we get over there behind our captain. And we're on his team. Being on Team Jesus or being born again, being born from above, becoming a child in God, a child of God in Christ. Uh, John the Baptist's joy, these are the things that are John the Baptist's joy, it becomes our joy. Uh, Please realize your greatest joy is not in having a bunch of good days consecutively for your whole life. Your greatest joy is the glory of your bridegroom, the exaltation of your king. He made you. And if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, he's made you a new creation in Christ. And in his goodness and wisdom for you, he has made you to long for what is the best thing for you. And so the question is, what is the best thing for you? And the answer, he is. Jesus is the best thing. You were created for more than just yourself and and what you can accomplish for your own consumption on this earth. You were made to know and to behold glory. And not just any glory, God's glory. God's glory. Knowing him and making him known will give you more joy than anything this world has to offer. And that fact further glorifies God. So we have this beautiful cycle. God deserves all honor All glory, all praise. We get our greatest joy when we are enjoying him, which gives him glory, which gives us joy, which gives him glory, which gives us, well, that's sweet, (laughs) isn't it? This is how God made it to be. It's, it makes sense and it's wonderful. We need to see it and submit to God's way. And enjoy him forever. Let's be a church that lifts up high the name of Jesus Christ. Let's be a church that points the lost to him, giving them the greatest joy and giving him glory from another man's lips. We will be a joy-filled church when we are a church that is most excited about our Savior's glory. Seeing him lifted up, worshipped by new converts, loved more deeply by his followers, us, seeing him as more and more wonderful in our own hearts. We sang and crowned him with many crowns, 
the idea of seeing him for all he is. Jesus doesn't get better. He's already perfect. But we get to see a little bit more of who he really is. And that gives him more glory and it gives us greater joy. Remember, John the Baptist had this figured out because he knew who God is and knew who he was. Jesus is God the Son. Eternal, all-powerful, just, and gracious. Our suffering servant and our sacrificial lamb. He is our loving husband who has given himself for us. We are sinners saved by his grace. A bride who was taken from the side of the road in our desperation and sin and washed clean and made to be beautiful in the eyes of our husband through his own sacrifice. And now given the greatest task in the created universe to enjoy him and to show others just how great he is. We must decrease and he must increase. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us joy. God, please help us to see in our own hearts where all the places might be that we look to for the joy that only you can give. Whether it be the praise of man or a relationship with a person or stuff, possessions, wealth, professional success. God, we acknowledge that while any of those things are not in and of themselves evil, Lord, when we choose to make those the source of our joy, we get all mixed up. And I pray, Father, that you would increase in our hearts, that we would truly delight in seeing you lifted up and seeing Jesus Christ magnified and exalted. And God, we thank you that you have made us in such a way that we can have deep, long-lasting, all-sufficient joy because of Jesus and in Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.